Would you pray with me? Our gracious God, we give you thanks for your scriptures, which are able to teach us, which disclose to us the truth about you. And as we open them here, would you open our ears to receive what you have for us in the name of Christ. Amen. One of the uh, challenges of preaching in a church like ours um, is we have this glut of resources every week. Uh, we have four different passages of Scripture that we always read. In his letter, one of his letters to Timothy, Paul writes, he says, you need to devote yourselves to a couple things while I'm gone, you who are a pastor of this church in this town where there's so much need. And one of those things, some of you know from Chesterton House, the public reading of Scripture. You just got to read it. You got to hear it. But it means as we sit down together to think about it, there's a lot to take in. I had been planning for most of the week uh, to try to pack, unpack some of this strange parable in Luke's gospel. It's only in Luke's gospel, this dishonest manager that Jesus seems to see as some kind of a model for us, or a foil, perhaps. But I actually don't want to talk about that until next week when we read the rest of the chapter. So I'm going to ask you, if you're going to be here next week, or even if you're not, uh, to take a look at Luke 16, and we'll think about it some together next week. The thing is, as I was reading the passage in Timothy this week, I was just struck by Jesus and the way his coming is so central for us. And so I wanted just to look with you at these first seven verses of 1 Timothy 2. Uh, this week and the next couple weeks, we have in our lectionary uh, some selected passages from First and Second Tim Timothy. They're interesting letters, sometimes called the pastoral letters along with Titus because they are written from Paul to these pastors that are serving these churches, and they're, they're full of advice and direction for the church. Some of you might be aware that there's some question, especially in the, really only in the modern period, about whether Paul is the author of these letters. They say right at the beginning, Paul the author, but they're a little different from Paul's other letters. Different languages used, different forms and flows of thoughts, and so I just want to acknowledge that there's some question about that, and so if that's a hang-up that you've got. There you go, I acknowledged it. Um, I think the letter wants to be read as Paul's letter to Timothy, so let's read it that way. Wherever and however it comes from, it comes in a situation like this. The church has been around for a little minute. Paul has been preaching, the gospel has been going out in these cities in the diaspora, starting in Jerusalem but going out, the book of Acts tells us the story. It's there and there are problems in the church. So if you thought that problems in the church were like a new thing, they are not. In fact, it's like part of the tradition that we have problems in the church. And one of the things that uh, happens in some of the later letters in the books of the New Testament is that when there are problems in the church, as Jesus said that there would be, one of the ways of thinking about that, what we should do there, is to remember what was from the beginning. Remember what is central. And so what I want for us to do today is to remember what is central. It's a short little passage from 1 Timothy. I'll read it um, once more for us. Quentin read it a second ago. You can read along if you'd like. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I'm just going to pause for a second. We have what's like just a, 
just an instruction. You need to pray for everybody. And specifically pray for all kinds of people, people who are in positions of authority, because you know what? You would like to live some sort of tranquil life where you might do the work that you are called to do, to love and serve your neighbor, as we always say in the dismissal, without interruption, without difficulty. But in the midst of this, could we say rather bland? Maybe not bland. In the midst of this basic instruction, Paul ends up thinking about God and about Jesus. And I think we get to the core of the gospel message here in verses 4 to 7. We hear that God desires all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And Paul then says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, promise I'm not lying, a teacher of Gentiles in the faith and in truth. He starts off with just an instruction to pray for one another, and he gets into the meat of the matter about who God is and what he desires and what he has done in Jesus Christ. He desires that all people be saved, which raises the question, which you probably have thought of once or twice in your life before, are in fact all people saved? I'll point to the fact that in verse 2, kings and all who are in positions, and from eight, in the end of verse 1, prayers be made for all people. It appears that Paul is saying, I want prayers to be made for all, all sorts of people, because God's desire is not that anybody should perish, but as he says elsewhere, that all should come to a knowledge of the truth, to repentance. It is a wide and open offer. But that offer has a particular character to it, knowledge of the truth. Knowledge of the one mediator between God and man. In verse 5, we get this statement. How is it translated here for us? For there is one God. The Greek might be a little bit something more like, one is God. It's a pretty nice allusion in Greek to that passage from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6, that's like the, the passage in Jewish prayer, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then directly after that, which is what we say all the time, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. But that begins with a statement about God's unity. Paul is picking this up, but then there's a little bit of a poetic play. There is one God, but one also is the one who stands in the gap between God and man. The middle position, the God-man, the man Jesus Christ. It's interesting, the early church believed, Paul himself believed, that, that, that somehow, mysteriously, Jesus of Nazareth shares the divine person's nature, shares God's nature. Jesus is divine, and yet he's emphasized here in his humanity, the man, Jesus Christ, the anthropos, not gendered really particularly, the human, the human. In the third century, the, sorry, the early fourth century, somebody's going to correct me if I get that wrong. Um, Gregory Nazianzus, a Greek-speaking theologian, says something like this, thinking about the way that the Son of God assumes a human, assumed a human nature. He says this, whatever he did not assume, he did not heal. Because Jesus Christ came in the world to take on broken humanity, the way we say in our Eucharistic prayers, to take on our nature becoming like us to bring us to God. It was a path that was through death. But the humanity of Jesus in verse 5 
I mean, this is sort of stuck with me this week, so I'm going to spend like the rest of the time here on these couple of verses for just a moment until Ryan tells me I need, I need to wrap it up. Should we have like some Oscar music at some point that tells you? Um, okay, verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Elsewhere, Paul is really interested in applying this term anthropos, this term man to Jesus Christ. In Romans 5, Paul like cuts open in the whole of Jewish scripture in the whole of world history to tell one great story about what God has done in Jesus Christ. And it's something like this. In the original human situation, we have Adam and Eve, and you know the story. They sin against God, despise his command, and through their own foolishness, which we get to take on and call ours, they have fallen into death and misery. Paul says through, there was one act of disobedience that brought death and condemnation and ostracism and you're now far away from God situation to all humankind. And then Paul says, and then there is a second man who has come, a second Adam, in the likeness of the first Adam, but able to do because of his divine life what the first Adam could not do. And he stands and offers himself righteously before the Father, submitting to what is hard and painful for you and for me. I think there is a little bit of an echo of that second Adam language in verse 5 here. Paul goes on to say, this man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. A ransom for all. This is actually, you may not, do you remember this statement from Jesus? It's in Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is one of those places where, one of those few places where Paul seems to know some of the teachings of Jesus and allude to them. Ransom, payment, the kind of thing that normally is kind of word, it's actually only the only place in the New Testament that this particular word is used, but forms of it are used elsewhere like in Mark. It's a word that indicates what you use to get something back from the pawn shop. And it wasn't like pawn shops, but like you had sold something to somebody, you needed to get it back, or you were in slavery and you needed to purchase your own redemption from slavery. This is a price to get bought back. Jesus, Paul says, gave himself for that, for all of us, for you and for me. Now, it probably gets us into a thicket that we may not be able to get out of to ask, well, wait a minute. Well, who did he pay it to? Did he pay it to the devil? Was the devil there holding all of us there? And once he extracted payment from God, he could let us go? Sort of like the white witch does in the Narnia stories with Edmund, if you remember that. Uh, The scriptures don't speak this way. They don't explicate it. There was something that happened with death, with Adam and Eve, the human situation, the world itself. God doesn't remember in Genesis 3, God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you, because of what you've done. The fundamental brokenness, which is characterized by death and curse, is somehow atoned for, paid for. Gave himself as a ransom for all, on behalf of all the one righteous for the many unrighteous. And then Paul says, this is the testimony given at the proper time. 
That is, in the fullness of time, this is to pick up language Paul uses in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under the law. Something happened in the time of Jesus Christ that was pivotal for all of human history. In the fullness of time, the proper time, God was on time to bring us out of bondage. And then Paul just goes on to talk about himself, uh, not in a self-absorbed way, but this is, all of this leads, Paul says, to what I'm called to do. I was called as a, an apostle to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I was meditating on this a little bit this week, thinking about their, this statement that there's one God and one mediator between God and humankind. Sometimes in the history of the church, the church has understood itself in following in Paul's commission to preach the gospel in a quasi-mediatorial sort of way, right? The church is the place that, where the graces of God are dispensed. And the church is the one where you have somebody who can pray for you between you and God. Now, it's the case, it is the case, brothers and sisters, that the grace that Jesus gives to us is mediated always through means through one another. When you reach out and give a hug to somebody who needs it, this is not just simply some bare symbol. This is, in fact, done in the name of Jesus, his own kindness extended to your neighbor. But it's worth remembering, I think, uh, if you have trouble in the church sometimes, that there is one mediator between God and man, just one. And it's his cross that's behind me. He is the one. He is the center. And all that we do, whether we're up here preaching or, or, or we're making coffee or we're loving our neighbors, cutting grass for somebody who needs it done, all that we do is a proclamation. It's just a proclamation. It's pointing. It has its finger. It's like John the Baptist on that famous altarpiece. He must increase. Ah, me? I'm just a guy. I mustn't decrease. He's the one. He's the center. He is the man, the Adam, the one who we worship and know. And brothers and sisters, he's given himself for you. So, take and receive. Amen.